All right, let me read a, a passage from Scripture. We're starting tonight a little journey through Galatians. And this is going to go a little bit different than it has been going. Here I'm just going to give you a reading and then a little short, I'm going to keep myself strict on time, five to ten minutes of a thought from Galatians chapter one. And then that's what we're going to take with us as adults into our deeper discussion time, uh, which we'll do right as we release the kids. But this is just a reading and then a five to ten minute, here's what Galatians one's about for us to take into our discussion. So let's listen to the first ten verses if you have your Bible. If you don't, it's printed for you. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's some way to begin a letter, by the way, right? (laughs) And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, Let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, and so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people still, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Let's think about Paul's, that's a tremendous opening, isn't it? To a letter. First of all, you know, Paul's idea of who he is and where he, you know, why he was sent to preach the gospel. He was not sent, he said, by any man. It was sent by Christ and God himself. And he's writing to this group of people in Galatia, some of the first churches that Paul planted, by the way. Very early. Remember how Paul had three missionary journeys? You might remember from flannel graph, if you were in uh, Sunday school back in the day, they had these flannel graph, flannel graph uh, maps of the Mediterranean and different... Uh, little strings and lines that would take you on the first journey, the second journey, and the third journey of Paul. Well, Galatia was on that first journey. It's in the very center of what we know today as Turkey, in the mountains, up in the upland areas of Turkey. The reason it's called Galatians is because at the time, uh, Gaelic people lived there, and, and the word Galatians means Gaelic people. So he's writing to Gaelic Christians who were first converted under Paul's ministry, But in the years since Paul left, and this is the way Paul did, he planted a church and moved on, and planted a church and moved on. He didn't hang around and stay the the pastor of the church. He had the other people called to do that. Uh, He kind of started it and moved along. That's how Paul did it. He was a serial church planter. Uh, In the years after he left Galatia, what had happened? Apparently, it says, look at verse 7 again, some people threw them into confusion by trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. They came in teaching something different than what Paul taught. They still called it the gospel of Jesus, but in one very significant way, it was not the gospel of Jesus, and so therefore, it was not the gospel of Jesus, right? Paul says it very clearly. The gospel they have tried to convince you to accept is not a gospel at all. 
And here's my thought for tonight, and this is what we're going to discuss. There is only one gospel because the gospel means good news. Think about that. What is news versus advice or instruction or wisdom or... Yeah, news is an occurrence, right? It's about something that actually happened, hopefully. Unless it's fake news. (laughs) It actually happened. That's news. News means, right, that there's only one of them about any particular event. I mean, just think about that in your head. There can't be multiple versions of the same news story and all of them be true. There can be multiple versions, but one of them is true and the rest of them have to be by definition false because things happen only in one way, right? Y'all following me there? And Paul says when he came to Galatia, here's what he built the church on. He planted the church on the basis of good news. And it was the good news of what God did through Jesus by dying on the cross. Look there at verses 3 and 4 and 5. And you get the, one of the best little summaries in one sentence of the gospel of Jesus, the good news. What does it say? Grace and peace to you. You received grace. You received peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Because why? Because Jesus gave himself up for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. That's the gospel right there. God sent his son in a real time, in a real place, uh, with a real mom, in a real community, and Jesus really lived a real human life and died a real human death to deliver sinners like us from what he calls the present evil age, from this age of sin and rebellion, to bring them out of that age and into the kingdom of God's love. That's the only gospel there is. And yet, people are trying to tamper with it. And I want to say that people try to tamper with it today. And so it's extraordinarily important that you understand this news The church has to be based on this news, and you can't add to it or take away from it without destroying it. That's what he says. Uh, He says, I didn't receive it from anybody, verse 1. And then, you know, if you have your Bible, verse 11, brothers, I want you to know the gospel that I preach is not of human origin. It's not made by men. It was started by God. It was made by God. It was explained by God. And so, just like the whole Bible says about itself, Anybody who adds to this will what? Be cursed. Anybody who takes away from this will what? Be cursed. And so Paul says here, let those people who are coming to you trying to act like they're Christian teachers, but yet they're teaching you a different gospel, let them be under God's curse. Now here's the million dollar question. How did they tamper with that message and how do we tend to tamper with it? Here's the way they tampered with it and I believe it's the same way we do. When they hear that it's a message of good news, of grace, of what God does for us rather than what we do for God, people aren't comfortable with that. People are not comfortable with grace. You say, well, hold on, people love grace. No, they say they do, but they really don't. We, we don't, I should say. We don't love grace. Why don't we love grace? Because grace takes the ball completely out of our court. Grace makes us entirely dependent on God <laughs> rather than in any way dependent on ourselves. Grace means that when, if God has shown us grace, that means God can ask anything of us 
And the result of grace is that we should joyfully and gladly do it because he saved my eternal life, right? We don't like grace. We're not comfortable with it. And so what people are always trying to do to the Christian message is add just a little bit of what we call works. My own contribution. To take the good news and put a little bit of good advice into it. To bake a little bit of good strategy into it. In this time, here's what way it happened. You may laugh at this, but this was a serious issue for them back then. A group of people came, and they were from a Jewish background. The Galatians were Gaelic. They were not from a Jewish background by far. They, they were worshiping rocks and stones and stuff before they met Jesus. And the Jewish background believers came in and says, you know, it's great that you all follow Jesus, and Paul told you to do that. That's all great. But you're not circumcised. You haven't kept the diet laws. Uh, you're kind of basically ignoring most of the Old Testament. If you really want to be in with God, Get circumcised and start keeping these basic laws. Paul went absolutely ballistic. Uh, that's, that's, what he, that's what verse 6 looks like. I am astonished, he says. I'm shocked at you. That you learned such a great thing. God had come to save you where you couldn't save yourself. And yet, you're, tr- you're actually starting to be convinced that you can actually be saved by anything that you do, whether circumcision or anything. Do you think that's actually going to save you? Do you actually think that's what Abraham believed? Abraham, the man with whom, for whom circumcision started as a thing? And, of course, the answer is no. Abraham didn't believe that. Paul's going to spend the whole letter talking about, no, the gospel that I preach is actually the one the Old Testament preached all along. All right, this is the OG gospel. <laughs> it's the only gospel. It's the one and only. It can't be switched out or added to. When you add just one tiny bit of your merit into your standing with God, you destroy your whole standing with God. Even if it's just as small as just to get a little bit of skin cut off. Just a little, it's just a little thing, right? Just, just be circumcised. And God will love you. That's all you got to do. You've added something, though small, highly significant, because it now puts the ball that belongs only in God's court back in our court. And ultimately, it lies to people. Because if the ball's in my court, even the little tiniest bit, I'm losing the game. Completely. And you are too. You might not realize that. You might think, oh man, but I thought we, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I, if I do all these things, this is what makes God pleased with me. No, I don't, I don't quite think you understand the holiness of God if you think that. I don't think you quite get it. And this book is about getting not just the holiness of God, but his overwhelming grace that he would rescue people like us. That's my thought for tonight. Ten minutes, five, seven minutes maybe. Uh, let me pray for us. The kids are going to leave, and then we're going to discuss that, adults. So stay, stay here in this room. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for your, the whole book of Galatians. Help us to dive into it uh, over these next several weeks, both through thinking, but also discussion and wrestling with some of these verses and issues. I pray for our kids tonight as they go out to learn uh, in Kids Quest and in student ministry that you would please, Lord, bless them with your, with your love and with your truth. Lord, give them a confidence that you are really who you say you are. We pray it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So we're going to discuss tonight Galatians chapter 1, and, and certainly as we do, I've got a discussion, discussion guide that Ben's getting off the printer, and I'm going to pass it to everybody. But 
Certainly, anything within this chapter that you see that you don't understand or that you wrestle with, we want to try to wrestle with that and answer it. Uh, but we want to use uh, this guide to help us. Uh, Ben's going to pass them out to everybody. Um, thank you, Ben, for doing that. So, so far, let's just start here. Um, what stuck out to you as you read this opening to the letter? Uh, it's, a, like we said, a strange way, kind of a bold way to begin a letter. Uh, what stuck out to you? Did anything stick out to you? Well, let's start here then. How would you describe Paul's mood as he begins this letter? Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe it, though? What does it sound like? Ballistic, yeah, he's upset. Yeah, he's, yeah, he, he's pretty, pretty angry. Do you think he's angry at the Galatians or these other false teachers or both? Both, yeah, he's angry at both. I mean, both the people that are trying to pervert the gospel and those who are being duped by the perversion, to Paul's mind, are both equally culpable, right? They're, they're both to blame because... They, they both should know better, and that's kind of the way Paul puts it, right? When he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. Uh, he really sees it as a, desert, a desertion, a personal desertion. You know, it's not just, hey, you guys aren't really, you're not checking off the right boxes in your personal confession of faith, and we need to hone that down. It's more than just that. It's like, no, you're actually walking away from God. When you believe these works ideas, Bob. The timeline between finding out the founding of this church and him coming back. With this letter, yeah. um, you know, most people think that he uh, writes this letter when he's um, <clears throat> when he's in Corinth later. So I would say uh, no more than a decade to be sure. Probably five years. I wonder how long it took him. Yeah, to get it, you know, probably four or five years. I would say. Um, all, yeah, all of Paul's missionary journeys, all three of them, took place in what they call one, one glorious decade, you know, one golden ten years. It was quite a run, those ten years. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> think about the pressures they would have been under. I mean, these people had, had known Jesus four minutes. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, four years is like four minutes, really. And uh, they knew the Bible for like four minutes. These Jewish people, you know, that, you know, it wasn't because they were Jews that they were doing this. It's not kind of some kind of anti-Semitic thing. But these were just Jews who were very, you know, deceived about what the Old Testament taught. These Jews happened to be. And so when they came into Galatia, I'm sure it would have seemed like they had a whole lot more credibility than they did. Because I mean, we've only known the Bible for four minutes. And these people were born and raised in it. And so obviously they got to know. So you can really see how they would have easily gotten swept up. They were probably very good speakers like most you know, teachers tend to be, and, and, and very persuasive and all kind of stuff, you know. So you, you can definitely see, and, and oftentimes Paul mentions the fact, and this is his own perception, but he mentions the fact that he wasn't a good speaker uh, in several places in his letters, and so sometimes they use that against him. You know, this new group would come in and say, hey, we're so much better at preaching than Paul. I mean, Paul, you know, he's good at writing letters, but preaching, well, you know. And, and that easily gave people this sense that, you know, okay, we've got something new and better here. Paul gave us the 101, and these people are giving us the deep cuts. You know, they're, they're bringing us into the riches. And really, that, the opposite was the case, you know. So it can easily happen, uh, for sure. Uh, look at the first question there, because this, I think, will get us into the main heart of chapter 1. 
the difference between Christian righteousness or the righteousness that's a gift of grace and all other kinds of righteousness. In the Christian faith? Yeah. In all the faiths. So think about it. this word righteousness. First of all, let's define what that means. What does righteousness mean? Right standing. As the word right is in it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's about justice. It's about being able to stand in front of a judge and say, I am innocent. I've done the right thing. I'm not guilty of doing the wrong thing. That's righteousness. Uh, Christian righteousness or grace righteousness, faith righteousness, is the one that's given to you from Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. All other versions of how people become righteous are based on either partially faith and partially works or all works. There's some aspect of it in all other forms of righteousness in the world that there's something I do to contribute to it and God pays me back. It's only Christian righteousness or gospel righteousness, whatever you want to call it, the righteousness that Paul's talking about here that he talks about in Romans. It's only that righteousness that's entirely a gift of God. Let me tell you a story to illustrate that, if I can. I know this is a discussion, but I want to tell you this story because I think it will help you. Um, Martin Luther, who we're going to celebrate on October the 31st because he started on that day the Protestant Reformation. Well, how did he get to that point? Uh, Martin Luther was, uh, he grew up as a miner's son. So this is a very appropriate story for Mulberry. the, the city in Germany that Martin Luther grew up in was a mining town. And his, his parents, all of his grandparents were miners. His dad really wanted him to go to school, though, and get out of mining, and he did. And so his dad paid to have him study the law to become a lawyer. But at the end of his law school, much to his father's displeasure, uh, Martin Luther was almost struck by lightning. Uh, like, literally, lightning struck, like, right beside him. And he got very scared. He thought God was obviously trying to show him something, maybe possibly trying to kill him. He just missed. And uh, so Luther swore to God that night and to St. Anne. Uh, this, remember, this is the Roman, medieval Roman Catholicism, so they would often pray through and to the saints. So he swore to St. Anne and to God that he would become a monk instead of a lawyer. And he went home and told his dad. And that was what upset his dad quite a bit because he had paid you know, all this money to have his son go and become a more successful man as a lawyer. So he, went, he became a monk. And he spent years as a monk, and he was tortured inside, like not, not physically, but tortured inside during his whole time as a monk. Because his, you probably already picked it up, his mindset. If you think when lightning strikes near you, if you think it's because God wants to kill you, is your conscience good or bad? Do you have a good conscience or a bad conscience? You get a bad conscience. Now, it's understandable. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I probably would feel a little bit that way. Flattening. I mean, that would be a terrifying experience. But nevertheless, that's a bad conscience. You've got something weighing on you that you're not really dealing with. And so Luther went into monkdom with that heavy weight on his shoulders. He spent all of his time you know, searching his soul, confessing his sins. He confessed his sins so many times to his overseeing monk, his abbot, that he eventually said, Martin Luther, you've you got to stop. You're just wearing me out with your confessions. You're confessing things that aren't even real. I think, he told Martin Luther this, I think God's not angry with you. You're angry with God. And that struck him to the core. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to make a change. 
instead of being a monk, or I'm going to continue to be a monk, but I'm going to take an assignment to be a professor of New Testament. Well, in his job interview, they asked him, have you ever read the New Testament? He said no. He'd never, ever read it. His whole life. This was the way things were in the Middle Ages in the church. Most people just didn't read the Bible. They didn't have it because it was in, a, in Latin, and usually the church had one copy of the Bible for everybody to share. And so he started reading it. It was reading both Romans and Galatians that brought Martin Luther to a discovery. At first, when he started reading Galatians and Romans, he thought, man, this is just more of the same. God is this terrifying policeman in the sky. Righteousness is, really means God's fierce and just foreboding wrath that's hanging over our head that he just wants to smash us with one day. And he could never enjoy it until one day as he was reading in Romans chapter 1 where it says um, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation uh, because it's, uh, it gives, what does it say? Um, I've just forgotten it. Oh, it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, for faith. For as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther said, the gates of heaven open. That's the way he described it. Because he realized the righteousness of God in the Bible wasn't just referring to God's judgment. The righteousness of God in the Bible was referring to a gift that God bestows on his people through his son. Like, like Jesus' actual deeds of righteousness, his actual perfect life is actually given to every believer so that they can stand right with God on Jesus' credit. Martin Luther discovered this for the first time, and it, and it started really the ball rolling that led to the Protestant Reformation. As we read Galatians slowly over the next several weeks, as we look at it, you're going to see this again and again. When Paul uses the word righteousness, he's talking about that. He's talking about right standing with God that is given as a gift not earned by works. And yet, every other religion on the planet is about the second kind of righteousness, including sometimes people's misunderstandings of Christianity. And this is to Paul's point. In the church... The gospel can be lost by importing the foreignness of works. Why do you think that is so important? Let's talk about that. Why is the difference between Christian righteousness and other kinds of righteousness so vitally important to the gospel? Think about it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah it's more like a boss or a, a boss relationship than it is a father-son or father-daughter relationship. It makes all the difference in the world. Why is it that even the tiniest bit, even the smallest trace of works, poisons the whole well of the gospel? Do you believe that's really true? And why? Exactly, yeah. In, in fact, Paul says that. Later, we'll see it later in the letter. He says in, in chapter uh, 5, I'm tell, he says this, I'm telling you, if any of you accept circumcision on their terms, the, the false teacher's terms, you actually are now obligated to keep the entire law to be saved. And guess what? You're not going to be able to. So these guys apparently were making a deal with him. Hey, Gentile Christians, you don't have to do it all, but just at least get circumcised and maybe avoid pork or do a couple things here or there, uh, and that'll, that'll make you right with God. And Paul says if you just let even a little bit, if it's just circumcision, it undoes the whole thing. Why? 
God's righteousness and holiness. How can a righteous and holy God say, okay, I'm going to judge you on the basis of keeping this one commandment but not the rest of my commandments? Is that righteous? I mean, you know, what if a judge in Polk County says, well, you, you can't murder here, but you can steal and rob all you want. As long as you don't murder, you're good. Is that justice? That would be insane. It would be like, the, you know, the movie Purge or something like that. And everybody would be out there trying to, to rob and steal. It would be a horror movie. God's universe is not that way, right? He, he doesn't say, here's, a, here's three commandments, three easy commandments to keep in order to be saved. Don't, don't worry about all the rest of my commandments. Just do these three easy ones. No, it's either all of them or none of them. Paul didn't have any problem, actually, with circumcision. He himself was circumcised. Um, we know, at least in one case, he encouraged someone to be circumcised, Timothy, in order to be able to minister to Jews, which is something that Timothy did. And so Timothy's background was his mom was a Jew, his dad was a Gentile, and so he had never been circumcised as a kid, probably because they had you know, warring disagreements in the home over religion. Uh, when Timothy became a Christian through the influence of his mother, um, he was baptized but wasn't circumcised. Paul actually encouraged him to be circumcised in order to help win Jewish people by fully identifying as a Jew. But it was not because he felt like Timothy had to do it to be right with God. That was what Paul had a beef with. You know, and, and actually he's going to say even Abraham wasn't, didn't accept circumcision on those terms. Right? It wasn't, hey, get circumcised, Abraham, so that you can be saved. It was be circumcised as a way to show you have been saved, as a way to show that I am the God who saves sinners. It's very different, right? This is essential to the gospel in every conceivable way. Let's think today. There's, there is no circumcision party in the church today, at least in our parts of the world, which is what Paul calls them um, later in chapter 1, the, the, or in chapter 2, the circumcision party which doesn't sound like a fun party, uh, at least to me. Um, but what do we have today? What are the rules that we try to import into the gospel as necessary for salvation? Hmm? It could be baptism, yeah. Right. Which Baptism is the very same as circumcision, right? It's a wonderful thing, but you should not think you have to do it to be saved or that it saves you because once you do that, you've all of a sudden committed yourself to having to do it all to be saved. You see that? What else? Yeah, yeah, don't smoke, don't drink. You know, those types of things are very common. Yeah, certain like a lot of external manner type behaviors that we think are Christian, you know, um, and if you do those, then God will be pleased with you. If you don't do those, God won't be pleased with you. Um, yeah. Anything else? Speeding. <laughs> Speeding. Yeah, there's one. Yeah. Don't speed. Speed. Don't speed. Yeah, that was inside joke. <laughs> Charity. Yeah. Yeah. Giving. Right. Yeah. If you give a certain amount, or if you're generous enough. Yeah. And again, Paul's not saying these things are bad things. He's actually not even saying that God hasn't commanded you to do them. Because he has commanded you to do them. Paul's only beef is this. It's not the gospel to say that doing them makes you right with God. Because as Jesus tells in the story about the servant who 
did everything the master told him to do. And he said, when the master comes home, is he going to say, oh, servant, what a wonderful job you did. Now let me, now you sit down at the feast and let me serve you. Would any master of Jesus' day do that? No, he says, because the servant has only done his job. He doesn't deserve a reward. He deserves his wages, maybe, but not a reward, right? Uh, and Jesus says, same with you, and I, same with you, he says, not with him necessarily, but with you. Uh, after you have done everything God told you to do, you're still an unprofitable servant. That's what Jesus said. You've still just done your duty. You're so far from earning salvation by it that you might as well think about jumping over the moon as earn your salvation. It's, it's as easy for a man to jump over the moon or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a man to be saved by his own do actions or possessions or doings or whatever. It's amazing, isn't it? Anything else? Why is this difference so important? Christian righteousness works righteousness. Your view of God, yeah. Yeah, remember, where did it lead Martin Luther? Angry at God, always sitting there feeling like he never confessed enough. And he probably hadn't confessed enough. Just like I hadn't and you hadn't and none of us have. He have never, we've never worshipped good enough. We've never repented well enough. We've never done anything good enough. Uh, and so um, once we start you know, pinning our, putting our eggs in that basket, we're very lost. Uh, this is what Martin Luther writes in his uh, preface to a commentary on the Galatians. He says, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. No middle ground. It's not like you can have this sort of hybrid between the two. There is no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. It's either grace or works. It's like oil or water, night or day. You can't have some hybrid mix that doesn't work. If you do not, this is what he says, if you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. That was his conclusion after all his soul torture that he went through. And that's what launched you know, our churches, the churches that are in our stream of Christianity, is, to, is that recognition that the Bible teaches you a righteousness that is given. And it, you have to either put your confidence completely in that or not in that at all. And you're all back on yourself. Now think about this. Today, um, this is another thing to think about in number one there. People might not uh, run to circumcision or even baptism today or you know, communion and things like that. We may even be worse than that. We may be running to things that God hasn't even told us to do as the source of our righteousness. Uh, you say, how do you figure that? Well, think about it. Every person, whether they consider themselves religious or not, is trying to find right standing. Is that not right? Isn't everybody trying to think that they're enough, that, they, that I've, I can stand on my own two feet, I'm enough, I'm good enough? How do people around us try to find out, how do we try to find that we're good enough by our own actions that aren't necessarily religious? Don't we do that? How? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not great, but I'm not as bad as that guy. I hadn't done what he did. I've never been to jail, you know. It's a number one way. It's comparative righteousness. We can call it that. What are other ways? Judgment. Judgment. Judging other people. Um, you know, again, similar to that, comparative righteousness. But this one is, 
I'm, I feel like I'm good enough because I'm able to spot all the, all the wickedness in everybody else. And I've got a keen eye. That's another way that we think we're enough. And honestly, it's just a way to distract from, distract your keen eye from yourself. Because we know that it's not comfortable. What else? Self-sufficiency. Yeah, it could even be just financial self-sufficiency and, you know, financial success and the job that I have and the degree that I have and the you know, the job that I don't have or the degree that I don't have. I mean, it, we, we can literally turn anything into a source of I'm good, I'm good enough, I'm better than you, I'm better than those people, God should love me. It could be your weight, it could be your, your physical appearance, it could be your, your, how well you behaved your kids are, it could be how good and romantic your marriage is. I mean, and, and all the, none of those things are bad, right? Just like circumcision, baptism, and all the rest. But the moment they become a part of your right standing with God is the moment they become deadly. Because as, as Paul says, you know, he, he could say the same thing about all those things as he says about circumcision. I tell you the truth. If you accept your looks as the way to be right, then you've got to keep all the other commandments of God to be right. <laughs> if you accept your financial success as the way that you're right in this world, you got to also keep all the commandments. You know, a little bit of merit leavens the whole lump. Which is also a direct quote from the book of Galatians. A little leaven leavens the whole lump when it comes to works and grace. All right, so secondly, think about this. What changed in Paul's life? And now you've got to look at your Bible now, uh, verses 11 to 24. What changed in Paul's life when he discovered and believed the gospel of grace? So Paul has a similar story to Martin Luther, come to find out. What did Paul do before he became a Christian? Verse 13, you've heard of my previous life in Judaism. I was religious, just like those guys that are coming to confuse you. Intensely, I persecuted the church of God, and I tried to destroy it. Do you see that? That's verse 13 in the Bible. You don't have it in the printout, but it's, it's there in the Bible. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my own people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, listen to this, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult other human beings. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. I didn't go to the Jerusalem church and find out whether they were going to accept me or not, I was fine with God's acceptance. And I received a master class in the gospel directly from Jesus himself. Now that's something that none of us can say. That's Paul's, Paul's alone experience, right? We, we do not get a direct revelation from Jesus the way he did. He's an apostle, and we're not. But nevertheless, you can see the point here, right? He's saying, I got it straight from the source, when I discovered grace, it unraveled my whole life of religion that I lived before. My religious life prior to coming to Christ was an angry one. Religion made me angry. And doesn't it often? Doesn't it often? Right? Um, you, know, being, you know, coming to church can either make you a far better person than you are or a far worse person than you are. 
Depends on whether you approach it by works or by faith. If you approach it by works, just like Paul and Martin Luther, it'll make you worse, a good deal worse. There are some dark characters within churches who've been misshapen by a works-based system with God, and they think that they're great, you know, but they're extraordinarily hypocritical and extraordinarily hurtful and damaging. In Paul's case, he was even violent. He was like a religious terrorist. And religious terrorists, that's the same, that's the same reason why they're terrorists. It's because in their religion, it's about works. And they've taken it to the furthest extreme. Because when you start going down the road of works, if you've got, a, if you've got any kind of honest conscience, you're going to have to take it to the extreme. It's all or nothing, right? <laughs> Uh, Paul was relieved when he met Jesus and first understood grace. He went from angry to what? I'd say joyful, for the most part. Angry to joyful. Instead of trying to destroy the church, what did he do? What did he spend his whole life doing? He built the church. He built churches all around the world, you know. And he poured into them humbly, but but he poured into them and he led them with grace. That's a radical change. Some people even say that the number one proof that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead on Easter is Paul's conversion. And I think that's not far from the truth. How else do you describe a conversion like that except that man saw Jesus raised from the dead? He was a religious terrorist (laughs) who became the preacher of grace par excellence, you know, in all history. How do, how do you explain that? It's like a Al-Qaeda member becoming an apostle. That's radical. He saw Jesus. I think he really saw him. And he really understood from Jesus' mouth, this is by grace, Paul. You, you got it all wrong. You thought you were right with God because you were circumcised on the eighth day. You, you did this, you did that, you did this, you did that. But in all that might have been great, but had you done it from a motive of faith rather than works, it would have been great for your soul, but it was bad for your soul. Because you were feeding that monster, you know, that's in all of us by nature. Any thoughts about that? That radical change that we see in Paul there. But God, when he, who set me apart from my mother's womb, when he revealed his son in me, I went to go preach to the Gentiles. I didn't consult immediately in Jerusalem. I didn't go up there to try to figure out whether I was right with them or not, I focused on whether I was right with God, and I found that I was right with God through Jesus. Thoughts? All right, let's do number three and four at least before we have to wrap it up. Uh, thinking about how Paul describes his own experience with the gospel, these next two questions are having, having you think about your experience. Uh, as you look back at your life, can you see God working? For example, do you see him working to protect you? Do you see him working to wake you up to things that you denied, like he did with Paul or Martin Luther? Uh, Do you see how he shows you the weakness or flaws in yourself, like he did both of those men? Has he worked to show you your value to him and why he gave his son for you? Question four, how do you see God helping you to see that salvation was by grace and not good works, or maybe he's still doing that. Maybe you're still discovering that. 
y'all talk. Well, what are some things y'all have experienced in light of those questions? How have you seen God working? The children, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, through children, yeah. Definitely through children, he shows me weaknesses and flaws in myself. Amen. Welcome back, kids. Come back over here, buddy, while we finish up. Over here with Mom. No, go with Mom. Anything anything else? How have y'all seen God at work? Isn't it neat? I mean, it's neat to do what Paul does here in your own life. Even think about how God was at work before you ever even called on him. I mean, I think about that. Before I ever even knew him, the things he was doing in my heart and life to prepare me, to prepare you. Uh, it's truly extraordinary, and I think it further emphasizes the fact that it's all been by grace all along. I mean, because he was working before I ever did anything to earn it, clearly. Um, very important. Uh, Martin Luther said, and also John Calvin said this, the two Protestant reformers extraordinaire. They said the church rises or falls on this teaching. The church will either be healthy or deeply unhealthy. Insofar as it understands salvation is by grace alone, or salvation is grace plus works, or grace plus good behavior, or whatever, being nice, or <laughs> all the things that we try to put in there. Do you really think that's true? If so, I would encourage you to continue to come and think about Galatians. We're going to take a chapter a week, and it's just going to be an introduction because we can't possibly get into all the details, but I hope that the introduction is going to help give you a handle on how revolutionary this book is and how radical the grace of God is. I mean, it's, it's a grace that saves you all the way, not just part of the way, all the way.